Welcome back, everybody, to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. It's been a hot minute since our last episode, so mm -hmm. hopefully we have lots of exciting stuff planned for you guys today. What's our <laughs> subject we're discussing, David? Well, we've got a few things. Uh, the main topic is going to be kinds of jurisdiction. Mm, spicy. Uh, U.S. law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How you know. Exactly what you came here to hear. You know, you've missed us for a few weeks. Now you get to hear about different kinds of jurisdiction. Yeah, you know, where where you can sue, who you can sue, and what kind of court, and uh, whether it's true that uh, 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 only an admiralty court can fly a flag with a gold trim, and you can only be court-martialed <laughs> once, so... Uh, for Is that the, the Dale the Gribble fans. theory of, yes. <laughs> of jurisdiction, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be uh, our sort of uh, our big topic, quote-unquote, uh, but we're also going to be reviewing a couple recent Supreme Court decisions or actions or you know whatever you want to call them um but uh with that said i think uh we should hop into it look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before or since tall words proudly saying we the people all right just to let you guys know uh we're, we're trying out a new thing we're going to be announcing our topics ahead of time so we we're going to have a series coming up on Alexander's favorite One of history's philosopher. most interesting and <laughs> orig original, I don't know. One of history's <laughs> weirdest and dumbest philosophers, none other than Jeremy Bentham. Yeah, it, we'll, we'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the episode as well, but that's something to look forward to. A man who has uh, outsized influence on the political landscape. On a variety of fields. You know, he's yeah. really a polymath, that guy. So good at so many things, you know, uh, critiquing yeah. the Declaration of Independence. What's um, <laughs> and, you know, he was just he was really the life of the party. I mean, he knew his friends were going to miss him when he died. So he said, well, so that you won't miss me. Why don't you just preserve my body in formaldehyde and then it can sit around with my friends after I'm dead. So that, that's our next next three episodes are going to be on Mr. Bentham. Yeah, on, on a variety of subjects. Uh, but, yeah, that's something to look forward to. And then after that, we will be taking our long-promised dive into <laughs> AI and whether or not it can be helpful in the legal profession. Yeah. It, I've been trying it out. Uh, yes. I guess spoilers, uh, mild spoilers. Um, sometimes yes. Oftentimes Usually no. no. Yeah. Usually uh, no. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to think it, of the best balance. <laughs> To, to say that. I don't think I'm being replaced anytime soon. Let me put it yeah, that way. I, I think that's accurate. <laughs> anyway, something to look forward to. And with that introduction, let's take a look at one of the first cases for their, our docket today. Item number one yeah. is Arizona v. Mallorca. We practiced Mayorkas. the pronunciation of this word before we started. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we're not 100% on this one. It's like the word mayor... And then K A S. So and then you Marcus, added an R in the notes, Marcus. and that's still what yeah. I, I, I spelled notes. it wrong. That's not. I spelled it wrong. That's, you've that's, been that's in true. Britain too long, um, David. I. All right, we talked about how that doesn't make sense. But no, they fine. they <laughs> have those R's sometimes. You know, in in words that have an A sound. Uh, they remove okay. most of the R's, then they add in a couple. <laughs> have we talked about how that was um, my experience with certain forms of the Boston accent as a as a child in Massachusetts? How uh, I don't think we have. I had, okay, so I had, it's sort of like the suburban rim of the Boston accent. Uh, you start to get back some of those R's that they're dropping. So I had a, a teacher in like first or second grade 
who would say, uh, you know, Ka and stuff like that. But then she'd ask us if we were excited to. Yeah. Yeah. But then she'd ask us if we were excited to eat pizza. Pizza. uh, Or if we had any ideas. So you can can eat pizza at Havid in in the yard. In your car. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to have it in the yard and eat pizza. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, That's that's great. Anyway, (laughs) uh, that's really neither here nor there. (laughs) Well, so Arizona v. I'm going to go with Mayorkas. Mayorkas. Let's go with that. What happened here? Background here. Yeah. A couple of years ago. For those who have not been paying much attention, we had a pandemic, right? So <laughs> yeah, you may have, you may have heard, yeah, or at least they claimed it was a pandemic. I don't know. That's ooh, spicy. That, that's up uh. in the air. <laughs> they said that there was this new variant of a coronavirus called it the novel coronavirus <laughs> came around, affected everybody. A bunch of people died. May have heard about it. Anyway, as a result of this pandemic, different jurisdictions proliferated. Eh, various kinds of laws, mandates, <laughs> regulations, things of dubious legality in mandates, many instances. orders. What's that, Tim? Uh, mandates, orders, uh, different dictates. kinds of things. Yeah, you know, some people uh-huh. did it in a little bit more kosher format than others. Um, mm-hmm. But the one we're looking at here is a Title Forty Two order restricting immigration at the border as a result yep. of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's if you were to divide COVID-19 regulations along partisan lines, I'm not saying you ought to do that. But if you were to do so, I think most people would agree that the majority of these regulations, mandates, orders, laws, etc. Skewed left, right? It was Mm -hmm. the left wingers that didn't want to get sick. Um, Be, be that as it may, that's really not relevant to the to the legal ruling here, uh, which was that, you know, you had a, a group of states led by Republican attorney generals. Uh, Attorneys suing general. In order to, um, fair point. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's like it's like Spider-Man. If they have more than one Spider-Man, it's Spider's man. <laughs> Spider's man. Yeah, Interesting. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure I agree with that one. Um, <laughs> Batsman. That's that's a term already. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually is a word. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, not in our country, uh, but in yours. A group group of states seeking to have the Biden administration uh, enjoyed to continue enforcing this policy, uh, and the Supreme Court basically threw out the case because at this point it's moot. Uh, the national state of emergency ended, I think, last month, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, so the you know the basis of the order no longer applies. That's what actually sort of happened, you know, if you were looking just sort of on paper, what happened at the Supreme Court with regard to the Title 42 COVID measure? That's nothing, happened. nothing happened. <laughs> Basically, yes. But uh, when nothing happens, it's a great opportunity to pontificate. So who's pontificating here, but none other than one of our very favorite justices, Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. And what does he have to say, David? So uh, he, in as you'll tell from the beginning, he, this is not the first thing he said. This is after a long sort of rehearsal of all the, the legal background here. He didn't um, like COVID restrictions. No, and, and no. that will come out as well. So uh, and here, here I quote, I recite all this tortured procedural history, not because I think this court's decision today is wrong. And remind us what the decision ago, was. Uh, to uh, dismiss the case uh, uh, brought by the states to continue enforcement of this COVID measure. Right. Uh, it became moot with the end of the national emergency. All right. So the states are trying uh, to make him keep doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. they're deciding not to do that. Right. 
Uh, he said, nearly five months ago, I argued that the court erred when it granted expedited review and issued a stay. As I explained at the time, I do not discount the state's concerns about what is happening at the border. But, quote, the current border crisis is not a COVID crisis. And I agree with that. Yeah. You know, it's for whatever harm rescinding Title 42 will cause. Our Yeah, our border crisis is not a COVID crisis. So yeah. it's its own issue. And the court took a serious misstep when it effectively allowed non-parties to this case to manipulate our docket to prolong an emergency decree designed for one crisis in order to address an entirely different one. And yeah, so obviously, of course, referring to the fact that originally this was a dispute between Arizona and the federal government and then a bunch of other states, many of whom are not even on the border, yeah. uh, are arguing uh, in favor of continued enforcement. Obviously, if you're not on the border, there's no harm to you that occurs here. I mean, debatably, because we do have free passage in the U.S., but you yeah. probably shouldn't be a party. Yeah. Uh, w one of the states uh, is Alaska, and um, I'm guessing probably not a lot of people are getting over the border and then immediately bolting for Alaska. Well, they might be coming over. They might be coming from Russia, David. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure we had a lot of people swimming the Bering Strait. They might have been coming from <laughs> Canada, David. They could they could be coming from Canada, yes. Those are the um, ones you really got to keep out. Yeah, uh, you know we just we can't allow them to bring their weird bacon. Into no, this country. and they'll get maple syrup all over all of our American dollar <laughs> bills, and they'll stick together, and you just can't have that. They might they might pass some of their quarters as our quarters when the exchange rate is not exactly one to one. Yeah, though, that happens occasionally. That <laughs> that's a forgery. That that's passing yeah. off a document of of apparent legal significance as an authentic one when it is not. Yeah. And you know, the, the impact on the economy that's you're being defrauded of, I think roughly like 0.8 cents every time that happens. Um, but it's anyway. an act of war. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, uh, he goes on, uh, since March, 2020, we may have experienced the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country. Uh, I'm in. I, I'm aligning a, a few things. Here. I'm skipping around a bit. But, That's a big. Yeah. We may have experienced the great one of no, no, the greatest intrusions mm -hmm. on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country. Doubtless, many lessons can be learned from this chapter in our history, and hopefully, serious efforts will be made to study it. Uh, as a side note, I'm sure they will. I think 2020 yeah. will go down as a, a significant year in the history books when all is said and done. Mm -hmm. uh, one lesson might be this. Fear and the desire for safety are powerful forces. They can lead to a clamor for action, almost any action, as long as someone does something to address a perceived threat. A leader or an expert who claims he can fix everything, if only we do exactly as he says, can prove an irresistible force. We do not need to confront a bayonet. We need only a nudge before we willingly abandon the nicety of requiring laws to be adopted by our legislative representatives and accept rule by decree. Yeah. And that, you know, that to me just very succinctly puts exactly what we've experienced for the past three years. And, you know, it's put in terms that I think are very accurate, but evocative of, you know, the kind of situation that arose in the Soviet Union or in Russia, pre-Soviet Union. We talked about that in this podcast earlier this year. Uh, it's evocative of the collapse of the, the Weimar Republic into the Third Reich. Um, yep. You know, it's the reason why 
and we've said this a lot, so I won't belabor it too much, but the reason why you have procedure that you have to go through, the reason why you have to have lots of steps before you can make a law, the reason why you have due process requirements if someone is dragged before the court is because a lot of the things the law pertains to are very emotional subjects. Mm-hmm. And when you have something that evokes people's very strong emotions, something like a pandemic that produces you know, great fear in people, or even something like you know, when you have really heinous crimes that occur, uh, you, know, you can think of myriad examples of things that are evocative of strong emotions to people. The tendency, the inclination is always going to be to ignore the rule of law. But really, it's just the opposite. Those instances are the ones in which the rule of law becomes most important and it becomes most yeah. critical that you respect the rule of law because otherwise you're going to replace you know, sound reasonings from clear minds that were made when we were not in the heat of passion with decisions made in the heat of passion. And yeah. I think as any human being who has had emotions can attest, you don't make good decisions when you're in the heat of passion. No. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's always easy to believe you respect people's rights when no one has offended you. And it's always easy to uh, believe that you care about the process when it's easy to follow the process. Right. But yeah. And I think that's, that's the real, I mean, it's a lesson we should have learned a thousand times before the COVID-19 pandemic, (laughs) but certainly after the COVID-19 pandemic, you don't just throw out the rule of law because of an emergency. In fact, the emergency makes following the rule of law all that much more necessary. And this, yeah. this is, I mean, we, we covered this in our, our series on the Roman Republic and its collapse into mm-hmm. empire. It was exactly this flaw because remember their constitution actually had provision for emergencies where you could suspend the rule of law. And it was exactly that flaw that became exploited. Yep. Emergency measures, never a great thing. Rule of law needs to apply all the time. You know, that's why we're the Lex yeah. Rex Institute because the law is king. It is our only king. It is supreme over the actions of men. Okay, so enough of that one. Next, we're moving on to National Pork Producers Council. Oh, we're supposed to do our transition. <laughs> Thank you. All right, moving on to National Pork Producers v. Ross. So this is one where, this is actually a case the Lex-Rex Institute was trying to get. One of the reasons we were founded was we wanted to bring exactly this challenge. Mm-hmm. They lost. The people who did bring yeah. it lost. Lex-Rex was not involved. Not saying we would have done better but I'm saying we could have. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, this They lost one, 9-0 too, basically. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a bloodbath uh, ultimately. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So let, let's talk a bit about the the background here. Uh, it's had to so, do... So pigs are an animal, right? <laughs> That's true. Uh, uh, a when, mammal. When they're, um, when they're walking around going oink, oink, they call them pigs. When you kill them and put them on the table, it's called pork. That's right. <laughs> That's because of the Norman and, conquest that that happens. That's why the name changes. But those are the same thing, believe it or not. And so a few years back, California had a proposition for better treatment of pigs. <laughs> I think we, I think we may have actually talked about this one uh, previously when this was in uh, earlier stages. But basically what, what it called for was larger uh, pens for for pigs at least under certain conditions oh that sounds pretty uh, reasonable <laughs> uh, i mean that that certainly seemed to be the opinion of the california voters but obviously i mean they should have space, space to walk pigs. around right yeah well that's what the california voters thought certainly but 
obviously more space means fewer pigs in a given area means, you know, less efficiency in terms of the actual pork production yeah. means higher prices. It's a difficult, so, difficult thing to balance. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're not concerned at this point, uh, about, you know, the rights or wrongs or the, the goods or bads of various kinds of animal welfare legislation. Yeah. That's not the issue. We all agree animals here. should be treated nicely. I think we yeah. disagree on two things, whether or not that ought to be mandated by law. Uh, yeah. And then secondly, whether or not such laws can be imposed by a state in a fashion where they impose burdens upon interstate commerce. Right. And that's the key here is that it didn't pertain exclusively to, you know, the practices of farmers in California. That would be one thing. You know, if they said in the state of California, if you're raising pigs, you need to do X, Y, or Z. It was all pork sold in the state of California, which because these new methods are so much more expensive, or at least here's the argument, because those methods are so much more expensive, effectively what that does is it prohibits pork produced outside of California from being sold within California because no other state is going to meet the new requirements. It's going to make pork too doggone expensive. So the only pork that will be available on shelves in California will be pork that is raised in California. Yeah, which, and I, I think we may have discussed this last time as well, uh, California does not have an especially robust pork industry. There's plenty of other agricultural activities in California, but most pork is coming from outside the state. Right. Uh, that's also part of the the background here. Um, so, yeah. And as we, we talked about the Commerce Clause a lot, but just kind of a brief recap, what Interstate Commerce Clause does is it allows only Congress, so Congress and only Congress, to regulate anything classified as commerce between the states. Now, we've talked a lot about how both the definition of commerce and the definition of between and the definition (laughs) of states. Pretty much every element. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have vastly expanded over the past 240 years or so. Yeah, to the point pick that they a are... random episode we've done in the past and we probably talk about the Commerce yeah, Clause. Yeah, I'm not even going to say we're going to put links here because it's too many of them. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. vastly expanded. But another component of Congress's ability to regulate commerce between the states is that only Congress can regulate commerce yeah. between the states, which means that states cannot regulate commerce between them and other states. So how do you recognize if a law is commerce between states, if, if it's you know regulating commerce between states? Well, typically, it's whether or not it imposes a, an undue burden on the ability of, sta- of out-of-state actors to act in a market within that state. Yeah. And that's the basis of the challenge that was raised here. Uh, this, you know, National Pork Producers Council. I haven't looked into exactly who's a part of this, but presumably it's a number of you know pork producers from throughout the country, most of whom are going to be non-Californian. Yeah. Uh, and essentially they argued what California is doing here, because California is also such a large market, it's going to inevitably affect the way they do business. Uh, you really can't avoid right uh being impacted by this regulation and and that's actually where i think they went wrong with the argument here they argued that because california is so big out-of-state pork producers will be forced to comply with california's new requirement Um, and and that's the way in which california regulated out-of-state commerce i don't agree with that i think california is so big we'll probably just start raising pigs on our own you know there's lots of people here and the effect will be that you cannot buy 
pork that comes from out of state because it's never going to be economically feasible for out of state actors to produce pork um, for California consumption, which would also be a regulation on interstate commerce because it's an it's an effective prohibition of out of state pork from being sold. Yeah, I think that would be a much easier case to make because the only evidence you have to show in that case is the increased cost of producing pork. Mm-hmm. You know, the other way, it's like we're arguing over what percentage of pork actually goes to California. I think it's a losing yeah. case that way. So, yeah, well, and as as we've mentioned, they did lose ultimately yeah, because it uh, turns out like zero percent of the pork goes to California because it's too getting <laughs> expensive. Yeah. Um, what I think is interesting here, though, is that despite, as we mentioned, you know, I, I forget if it was eight justices or maybe even all nine justices ruled against. Uh, the Some of them, I think, were, were technically dissenting, but they concurred yeah. in judgment. So exactly. It, we, we ended up with, uh, you know, the the main opinion being penned again by Neil Gorsuch, but with like four separate concurrences in part. Uh, so like everyone wanted to 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 say their bit about this. And <laughs> let's play out why that is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, we obviously caution against reading the court as liberal or conservative, right? But yeah, they definitely have judicial philosophies. Yes. So I'm going to state a few principles these people hold. People on one with one sort of judicial philosophy, we'll call it originalism. Those people mm-hmm. tend to dislike overreach of the Commerce Clause. Yeah. They also tend to dislike regulations. Mm-hmm. They also, even more, tend to dislike regulations that they feel are a bunch of hippie, um, <laughs> you know, tree hugging. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to put a fine point on it. Yes. Yeah. We're going to play uh, up the stereotypes there. Uh-huh. See, any, any other factors in play? Those are about all I can think of for that side of the spectrum. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, that, that pretty much. It, sums it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the very people who have expanded the Commerce Clause to its ungodly and unconscionable <laughs> <laughs> size that it is now today. Uh-huh. But, you know, and the- those folks just love regulations. They'll regulate mm-hmm. the heck out of anything, and especially if it has to do with cute little animals. Yep. You know, it's, it's somebody with that particular judicial persuasion. Uh, we've roasted him on here before once argued the trees ought to be able to be litigants in court. Yeah. <laughs> Someone must speak for the trees. <laughs> yeah. No, the trees must speak for themselves and have a lawyer that's you know representing. Yeah. Them. yeah, yeah they, yeah. they should be able to be litigants. You should be able to have like this grove of elm trees, the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Represented by Lorax Esquire. Yeah. So we know they like <laughs> nature. Mm-hmm. So what are these folks to do? when faced with this case that is trying to overturn a law that protects animals, but to do so would require you to rein in the commerce clause. And we can't have that. You know, the judicial activists can't have that. That's the main, I've talked about before, that's the number one tool Congress uses to squeeze every ounce of life out of this country. And the liberals want, I'm sorry, not the liberals, the judicial activists (laughs) need that like that's their lifeblood is is doing that so what are we to do here david Mm -hmm. well uh you get some interesting balancing acts i think um so i guess 
we should start with uh, the opinion by Justice Gorsuch. Um, By the way, I love it when cases like this come down the pike. You know, when somebody's judicial philosophy cuts against their political philosophy, it's it's great because, you, you know, you just stress per certain parts of the argument. You play up certain parts of the argument. You can get swing votes you really don't expect. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And I, I don't think the litigants did that very well in this case. Um, you know, it's I, I really I'm a bit of an optimist here, but I, I can you know, I can demonstrate this from court history. Most justices will side with their judicial philosophy way over and above their political philosophy. So the fact that it's a regulation having to do with animal welfare, I think is going to end up being less important here than the Commerce Clause issues. So let's take yeah. a look. Anyway, uh, I think we should we should start with uh, Justice Gorsuch, who, you know, he, he wrote the, the lead opinion here uh, that... Yeah. Had, had all these partial concurrences. He tends to be good um, at that. You know, when the politics cut against the legal philosophy, he, and that's kind of why I like him. He's a really good exponent of these sound legal principles, even when they go against his politics. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's going to be one of these guys who's not a big fan of, I guess we're calling it the expanded commerce clause. You know, he's going to be concerned about uh, Congress using interstate commerce powers in various ways. You know, he, he's going to be on that end of things. But I think the balancing act he has going in his opinion is that he's also trying to preserve the rights of the individual states to make their own internal policy. Oh, that's there's the federalism issue too, that we didn't even touch on. Yeah. Which, which also is going to cut pretty much the same way. The people who are going to be not going to like overexpansive commerce clause are also going to be pro federalism. So, right. And yeah, in, in that case, I think that's what made the the difference, certainly in his reasoning, um, as you know, as given in, in the opinion. Um, but uh, basically, and, and so the, what the court officially ruled was that the uh, the appellants had failed to state a claim, um, basically. So uh, you know what they were alleging happened to them didn't actually violate law. It is basically mm-hmm. the. the the form that's really good. Yeah, so it's, it's failure to assert a claim upon which relief may be granted, uh, yeah. which means that you haven't even alleged that a law has been broken, even if all your facts are true. Right. Uh, and so the reason he says that's the case uh, is fundamentally that Proposition 12, that, that pork regulation in California, doesn't, as he puts it, discriminate against out-of-state commerce because it applies equally well to in-state producers. Uh, so the idea is, you know, it doesn't actually devolve differently. And he cites uh, some some past cases on this issue where the issue had been things like states setting minimum prices for beer. So if you're an out-of-state producer, you can make oh, What about the watermelon inspection one, though? The Arizona, I forget the name, but Pike, the Arizona yeah. watermelon inspection. Because that, that seems yeah, exactly on point here. Uh, Full disclosure, he says, I've not read this opinion yet, so I'm, I'm just... Yeah. Interrogate, interrogating David. <laughs> he, he talks about Pike v. Bruce Church, uh, which that's that case. Um, and he says, uh, and this is, I, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm on board with, with uh, everything he's got to say here. Uh, but he says that um, they overstate the extent to which Pike and its progeny. So, you know, cases following the reasoning in Pike. But there's a lot uh, that follow the reasoning. And that's, that's kind of been considered controlling precedent here. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he says that they overstate the extent to which Pike and his progeny depart from the anti-discrimination rule. Uh, he said later, a law's practical effects may also disclose the presence of a discriminatory purpose. 
So he's saying it's still fundamentally this anti-discrimination principle. Uh, and Pike was just sort of a, that. That a seems like such a fact weighing thing, though. You know, whether whether or not the practical circumstances evidence that, well, the real purpose of this law was to discriminate against out-of-state commerce, because if you know discriminating against out-of-state commerce is illegal, states aren't yeah. going to pass laws that, on, exactly. that, that facially do that. They're going to pass laws where that's the practical effect, right. which is you what know, Pike like, said happened. Yeah, it'd be like, you know, uh, it's basically so in that one is all the watermelons had to have a stamp basically saying they were certified by some kind of Arizona board of watermelon certification, if I recall correctly. And they said that yeah. it's basically impossible out of state watermelons can ever get that. Yeah, it, it was I, if I recall correctly, it was more specifically something that uh, watermelons grown in state also had to be packed in state in order yeah. to display the grown in state sticker, it, something like that. Right. Um and, you know, it was a, a, a case of a guy who grew watermelons right over the border from another state and it was cheaper for him to have yeah. them packed over there. Um, at any rate, yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not fully convinced by this reasoning. I think that's sort of... Uh, like, yeah. if they'd looked at the facts, you know, done, done full evidentiary hearings and concluded that there there is no you know, factual nexus here showing that there was a discriminatory intent, discriminatory intent behind the California law uh, where there was in Pike. That would make sense to me. But on 12B6 motion, that seems odd. Yeah. But... Because um, that's it, failure to state a claim. No, we've alleged that this law is discriminatory and that it was intended to discriminate. I think... So let me let me find this. Um, is it basically just like, well, I, I believe there's a lot of bleeding heart animal activists in California, so I don't think this is plausible. <laughs> I think the real reason they did it is to protect the animals, you know. <laughs> uh, in in a sense, yes. He basically, what, one of the arguments he makes is that we're dealing with incommensurable things here. You can't actually compare the benefit that California sees in prevention of maltreatment of animals versus the dollars and cents. Those are things mm -hmm. you cannot actually weigh against each other. There's no means to do that. Except so that, that you, you don't, without hearing that. evidence, you don't know that California sees any value in taking care of the yeah. animals. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you win this on a 12 B six. Yeah. Um, you know, and clearly as we'll see, uh, even people who agreed with the judgment did not agree very much at all. In some instances with this reasoning, I, I will that, say that like it, there's a lot of case history and a lot of legal history showing that animal welfare is a priority in the law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is something the law cares about, something it countenances frequently. Uh, whereas yeah. made in state, you know, a sticker saying made in state, the benefit of that seems to be buying things that were made in your state, which is right. <laughs> as such discriminatory. So like, I'll give them that much. That's fair. It does go a step beyond Pike on that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, let, let's take a, uh, a look next at Justice Sotomayor, who uh, as I think everybody else who, who wrote anything on this case submitted a partial concurrence. Um, and she says, I vote to affirm the judgment because petitioners fail to allege a substantial burden on interstate commerce as required by Pike, not because of any fundamental reworking of that doctrine. Uh, and then oh, well, that's later, what Gorsuch said, too. Gorsuch said he's not reworking Pike. He well, that is what she meant there was that the petitioners have not reworked. Pike. Oh, I see. Um, 
yeah, it, uh, you know, the wording got a little, a little lost there in the, in excerpting it, but that's what she was getting at. Um, anyway, a bit later, she writes, Justice Gorsuch for a plurality concludes that petitioner's Pike claim fails because courts are incapable of balancing economic burdens against non-economic benefits. Mm-hmm. I do not join that portion of Justice Gorsuch's opinion. Uh, and here, I think we can see, you know, again, if Actually, we're I kind of like that as a ruling going forward, you know, what, what she's stating as Gorsuch's ruling. But that certainly does narrow Pike. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, you Because that's see... true. Pike was comparing one economic benefit against another economic benefit. Here we're looking at um, a non-economic one against an economic one. And, and did he actually say that you can't balance the two? That that's... Because uh, if he did, kudos to that guy. Like, he, that's it... what the court should have been saying for decades. <laughs> I don't remember if he said it like absolutely, or if he just said like in it's very difficult and we shouldn't in general. I forget exactly yeah. how he said it. Uh, but and he like us is the... not a big fan of these balancing tests because they balance unlike things. Right, right, and you can see here Justice Sotomayor, uh, you know, has a very different judicial philosophy in general than Justice Gorsuch does. And she likes the balancing her... test. Yeah, she can. You can see her preserving preserving the room to do exactly that to say. Uh, you know, some, but some I just, interests. I just want to say that a hundred thousand dollars is worth less than the ability of this woman to get an abortion. Right. Or, <laughs> or more you? potentially. <laughs> no, that, that's really the, 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 um, the more activists, the, the left leaning wing of the court would have that be the difference of opinion between justices. It's just that they value these things differently. Right. Where, whereas um, an originalist, a textualist would say, that's an absurd way for judges to make decisions. There's no certainty in that. There's no predictability in the future. We shouldn't make decisions based on personal valuation of things. Right. Um, I tend to lean that way. Yeah, uh, I, I think I can, can safely say I agree with that. Um, Justice Barrett, who, uh, you know, n- not quite as uh, consistent, I would say, as Justice Gorsuch on, on these sorts of issues, mm-hmm. but we're swinging back yeah. in that direction. Um, however, she says, uh, I agree with Justice Gorsuch that the benefits and burdens of Proposition 12 are incommensurable. Uh, California's interest in eliminating... Incommensurable. Good. Not just incommensurate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, California's interest in eliminating allegedly inhumane products from its markets cannot be weighed on a scale opposite dollars and cents, at least not without second guessing the moral judgments of California voters who are making the kinds of policy decisions reserved for politicians. Uh, and... Yeah, I'm, I'm alighting a little bit, but uh, basically she says, but uh, if the burdens and benefits were capable of judicial balancing, I would permit petitioners to proceed. So uh, preserving room for some kinds of balancing tests, but seemingly right. not of this not of this kind. Yeah. Um, Leaving things open in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, we can uh, do balancing tests if, if, if they're appropriate. They're just not here. Where it, it sounds like, you know, from what you read, Gorsuch did not absolutize it anywhere near to the degree that they're suggesting. Um, I don't, no, I don't know I that don't, he said economic and non-economic values are never balanceable. I, I, I also read this uh, a little while ago. I don't remember exactly how far he pressed that principle. I don't think it was yeah. never, but... Um, Certainly, you know, cautioning doing that. Um, Justice Roberts. I would say never. Yeah. um, (laughs) I think that that uh, certainly has uh, some logical consistency to it. But again, judicial Um, restraint, you don't go that far if the case doesn't mandate that you go that far. So you rule on the facts before you. You say that you can't balance these harms. 
Um, right. You don't need to say in every case. In fact, you shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Justice Roberts uh, filed an opinion, basically just to say he thought that uh, there were some procedural defects and that the case should have been remanded to begin with. Um, and then finally, uh, Justice mm-hmm. Kavanaugh. That sounds like uh, him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Thank you, Justice John. Kavanaugh, <laughs> <laughs> Justice Kavanaugh uh, said, um, among other things, and this one, I, I didn't quote anything directly. I'm summarizing, but uh, basically he said uh, the argument you said, you, you think that they made a mistake by uh, by even introducing. Yeah. Given the market size of California and the fact that they don't produce their own pork, uh, this was de facto always going to be regulating nationwide pork production. Uh, and he said he wasn't sure, but he thought there may be other constitutional implications to Prop 12 as well. Uh, I don't like that. Know. That's my least favorite <laughs> of the opinions that we've, yeah, we've come the, across. You'll note, uh, I, this, other than the Roberts one, it's the one that I spent the least amount of yeah, I don't. On. That's I hate that. Like that just No, that shows the bias of the fact that most of these justices are all from the eastern half of the United States. They're just like, well, look at the West. Nobody lives out there except for in California, which is huge. So it just <laughs> dominates everything else out in the West. No, that isn't how it works. California is actually pretty isolated from most of the West. You know, we have our own um, oil refineries here. We don't refine it in Texas the way the rest of the country does. It has to be imported here. I mean, the reason why oil gas is always way way more money in California isn't just because of our stupid, stupid environmental (laughs) regulations. It's because it's a separate (laughs) market entirely. Yeah. Our freeways don't really connect to the rest of the West. They're kind of just independent in California. We're kind of our own thing. Like, I don't think that we affect the market throughout the country as much as they keep insisting we do. Yeah. Well, and you know, I was actually surprised to see the figures uh, where it, I think it ended up being that California was something like 12% of the nationwide pork market, which is actually uh, lower than a proportional rate would be. Right. Um, so at any rate, uh, I, I also feel like his, his, uh, his entry into the ledger was basically just saying, here's the way I would argue this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, that's worse. That's dumb. I don't like that yeah. at all. <laughs> anyway, anyway, bad opinion. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's what happened with uh, with pork producers v. Ross, uh, or uh, yeah, yeah, pork producers councils v. Ross. Um, as you mentioned, this was a case that we were tracking with some interest. Uh, it didn't quite go the way it might have, um, and we we do think that there's a, a good bit of room uh, to revise some of the jurisprudence on the Commerce Clause in the future, let's say. Yeah, and it sounds um, like Gorsuch basically did that. He walked back the dormant Commerce Clause a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which is too bad because that that's the the part of the commerce clause that protects us from some of the draconian rules. But hey, walking back commerce <laughs> clause is a good thing. So you know we'll we'll call that. That's kind of why we wanted the case is because if you win, you win, and if you lose, you win. Because you, <laughs> you, you either walk. I mean, assuming you stress the issues properly, and they they didn't quite do it here. But assuming you stress the issues properly, you either get a ruling that restricts the ability of states to impose economic regulations, which is good. I consider that a win. Or you get a a, a loss, which walks back the Commerce Clause, assuming you frame the issues right. Yeah. So we we walked back the Commerce Clause a little bit. That's good. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, that's all I've got to say on this one. I don't know if you have any further comments, but... Yeah, that's about it. All right. All right. So now for the topic everyone's been waiting for. Mm -hmm. Jurisdiction. Diction, diction, diction. I, I felt very kinds. dramatic there. I wanted to do the, the echo. Yeah, that's, um, I appreciate that. 
<laughs> yeah. So jurisdiction. First of all, I guess, uh, what is jurisdiction? Can you give us a, a concise definition? See if there's anything maybe from one of your textbooks in law school uh, that you could give us like a... If we pause uh, it and wait for me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from Black's Law Dictionary. It's kind of the standard dictionary when it comes to law. And it defines jurisdiction as a government's general power to exercise authority over all persons and things within its territory, or a state's power to create interests that will be recognized under common law principles as valid in other states, or a court's power to decide a case or issue a decree. Um, yeah, and then it kind of gives a bunch of different sorts of jurisdiction. <laughs> all right. Um... I think uh, we're we're more or less talking about definition three there on this episode. Authority. Uh, yeah. That's what jurisdiction is. Authority to make and impose law. Yeah. Uh, and so... Or even just authority to impose, really. Not even make. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm confident enough in my Latin, which is very limited, but to say that... Uh, if we were going to sort of Anglo-Saxon that word up a bit, we talked about the, the Norman Revolution earlier changing pig to pork. Um, I think if we were going to change jurisdiction into something a little more Anglo-Saxon, it'd be uh, like saying law, basically. Yeah, um, yeah basically. It's because it's juris, which is law, hmm. um, and dictio, I think, or something like or that. So, something is, along those lines, yeah. Yeah, to say or declare. Yeah. So it's literally... Person who can declare law, right? So yeah. if you have jurisdiction, you're the lawsayer. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so who's the lawsayer in different well, uh, circumstances? Yeah, and that's you know that's the tricky part because we don't have just one. There's not just one guy who says what all the laws are. Yep. <laughs> we have many. The lawsayer in different <laughs> circumstances. Right. Uh, and on a, a sort of broad category. By the way, I didn't level, know you'd be getting the alligator alley. Yeah, that's, that's a bonus, a bonus segment in here. Yeah, <laughs> fair point. I forgot about that. We haven't done it in a while. Yeah, so um, get a bonus alligator alley. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, anyway, uh, you know, you're going to, I'm going to be relying on you for a lot of the heavy lifting here. because I. Oh, know, good. I didn't do any the... prep for this episode. I didn't even remember the name of Pike. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a case you're I rely the... on like weekly and it's not. <laughs> but, but. Critically, you are an actual attorney uh, and have been to law school. Uh, but I, I'm confident in saying this. True, I'm the law there, sayer here. There are at least, <laughs> yes, there are at least two big categories of jurisdiction in American law, maybe more than two. Um, but Oh, you ask Black's Law Dictionary. Let's see how many different kinds there are. I'm there sure that's going to give you a lot. Oh, yeah, it gives a lot. Um, mm -hmm. agency jurisdiction, ancillary jurisdiction, anomalous <laughs> jurisdiction. That's a stupid one. I shouldn't have that. that Appellate jurisdiction, good, yeah. <laughs> arising in jurisdiction, assistant jurisdiction, concurrent jurisdiction, complete jurisdiction, common law jurisdiction, consent jurisdiction, contentious jurisdiction, continuing jurisdiction, coordinate jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction, default jurisdiction, delinquency jurisdiction, diversity jurisdiction, emergency jurisdiction, equity jurisdiction, exclusive Sorry, exclusive jurisdiction, extraterritorial extra jurisdiction, federal question <laughs> jurisdiction, foreign jurisdiction, general jurisdiction, general personal jurisdiction, house, I'm sorry, home state jurisdiction, in personam jurisdiction, in rem jurisdiction, international jurisdiction, <laughs> judicial jurisdiction, jurisdiction in personam. That's the same thing as personal jurisdiction, loci jurisdiction of the person, same thing as personal jurisdiction, jurisdiction over yeah. the person, also same thing as personal jurisdiction, jurisdiction quasi in rem jurisdiction, ration materia, jurisdiction rational person, same thing as personal jurisdiction, jurisdiction ration temporis, jurisdiction. 
Legislative jurisdiction, limited jurisdiction, long-arm jurisdiction, original jurisdiction, overlapping <laughs> jurisdiction, pendant jurisdiction, pendant party jurisdiction. Okay. Uh, personal can jurisdiction, I, can I tell plenary you jurisdiction, primary jurisdiction. I'm almost done. Probate jurisdiction, <laughs> <laughs> prorogated jurisdiction, quasi-in-rem jurisdiction. I thought we already had that. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think we did already have that one. <laughs> Significant connection jurisdiction, spatial jurisdiction, special jurisdiction, specific jurisdiction, special, I'm sorry, specific personal jurisdiction, state jurisdiction, status offense jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction, summary jurisdiction. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Temporal jurisdiction, jurisdictional amount, jurisdictional discovery, jurisdictional fact doctrine. Okay. Now we're on to jurisdictional things. So yeah. that's you all the kinds. When you, said, you were lying when you said you were almost, <laughs> that was like another 12 things. Anyway. Are we going to leave that in? I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe. I'll have to see how I feel when I'm editing. Anyway, <laughs> what I was going to say. We're going to narrow it down to two. <laughs> was uh <laughs> these are the two that i i know exist and like you know are both yeah. subdividable yeah uh, and, and it's <laughs> we're gonna talk about jurisdiction over people here rather right. than jurisdiction mm-hmm. over cases because to have jurisdiction over a case you first need jurisdiction over the person right they have to be a person yeah. that can actually bring the case there it has to be a person against whom that court can exercise authority so if you look at those different ones that i just read or that we may have cut uh, most of them can can boil down to three different things: jurisdiction over people, yep, um, what we call in rem jurisdiction, and then different kinds of court jurisdiction over case and controversies. We're going to take those out of the the mix for now. Um, we're going to look just at in person and in rem. Yeah. So in person, uh, I'm I'm pretty confident that this one just what it sounds like you know you're you're a specific person or a legal person like a corporation uh yep. that a given court has authority uh over in, in some regard which is the reason why every major corporation is incorporated in delaware right because they want <laughs> delaware courts to have jurisdiction over disputes for that corporation because delaware courts are very deferential to corporations yeah um and okay so i guess we should talk about what sorts of things uh, have to be true of you for a court to have personal jurisdiction? You know, uh, I think probably the most obvious and intuitive one is your domicile. Res- you're a permanent resident, yeah, of a, of a given living with the intent place. to remain is the definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, when I'm when I'm in the states, I'm currently living in North Carolina, uh, but you know, I've, I've moved around a lot, but you know. When I'm home, at the very least, because I, I am still in the UK at the moment, um, you know, I could be sued in North Carolina. I can, I, in fact, I could still be sued in North Carolina, but because you do not uh, have the intent to remain in right. Britain, you are not domiciled there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the only form. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's you know, correct. If I'm doing business in a given place. I believe that can be a, a way in which a court might have jurisdiction. Uh, or, uh, you know, if I'm traveling somewhere and I commit a crime in that locale, that's uh, another way that a court right. might have jurisdiction. It's personal jurisdiction is what that basically means is a court's power to bring a person into its adjudicative process Um as a result of its power over your personal rights rather than merely your property interests or anything else about you. So yeah. if you're passing through New Mexico 
and you murder somebody in New Mexico, yeah. New Mexico would have in-person jurisdiction over you. They'd have, they call it impersonum or personal jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess the, the upshot there is uh, don't rely on the idea that, you know, you could go to a different place, commit a crime, and then they don't, they don't get you because you don't live there. Um, right. I think, I think most people get that. Uh, I'm not sure that a lot of people are going to try that one, but don't basically. But there needs to, there needs to be some connection between the person yeah. and that, the um, that state yeah. yeah, for there to be jurisdiction there. Like you can't, if I, if I committed a murder in California and I murdered actually, regardless of what, per, what state the person I murdered is from, but if I murdered a Californian, <laughs> Delaware couldn't hold the trial. Right. Yeah. Let alone, you know, Canada or something. That seems really obvious. Um, and like, yeah, we I think get deeper than that, but it's going to get really boring. Yeah. Um, I think, why I did think we this pick one's this the most subject, intuitive. David? <laughs> because, uh, some of the, the forms of jurisdiction get a little more nuanced, I think, than personal. Yeah, they do, but they get really boring when you start doing that. <laughs> like, literally, that, you learn that all in civil procedure your first semester in law school, and it's the most boring class you take. If you can stay awake through that class, you'll pass law school. <laughs> all right, so I guess uh, maybe people listening can consider this uh, like a test case. If you've been thinking about going <laughs> to law school, see how you respond to this one. Well, I'm, I'm going to try not to. You know, we're not going to do like international <laughs> shoe doctrine. And I have never. Oh, I'm having flashbacks one. just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that's that's personal jurisdiction. Let's talk a bit about jurisdiction in REM. Yeah. So, what does that? So mean? If you're asleep and you've entered the rapid eye movement section I, I, of sleep, I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> it's only think... the court of Dreamland can <laughs> hold you to account for what you do. You know, uh, I am confident enough, again, in my Latin to say that that is not what that means. Oh. That means jurisdiction in a thing. That's right, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's still jurisdiction over a person, but rather than being based upon personal aspects of that person, like the exercise of personal rights or things they're yeah. doing um, as a person, it's based upon that person's property interests within right. a given so, jurisdiction. So if you own a home, in California, even though you'd never been there. Yeah. And you, somebody you bought it trespasses mm -hmm. on your home. And then it turns out that you, there are a bunch of bear traps all over <laughs> and they step on one and cuts their leg off. They can haul you into court in California because there's in REM jurisdiction over you. Yeah. How, how deep do we want to get for like what counts <laughs> as in REM and what doesn't? If how, how briefly could you do that? I mean, Quasi in REM comes up a lot. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> uh, that has to do with a person's interest in property located within a territory. Okay, so meaning like, you know, if I'm part owner of a, you know, I have a stake in physical some property stake. somewhere. Yeah, it wouldn't have to be a yeah. part owner, but some stake. Yeah. Okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> There's, I mean, there's rules for when this stuff applies, but I just be kind yeah, of reciting yeah. like a thousand rules. I don't. Right. It, I, I think that's what we want to emphasize more than, yeah, more than all of the granular details is just uh, getting people to recognize that, you know, this gets more complicated than you might think it does. Um, yeah. You know, and we could, not... we could tease that out. You know, we could give scenarios where it's like everybody's on an airplane. Mm -hmm. The company that owns the airplane is incorporated in Delaware. Its principal place of business is located in washington state the flight left 
LAX airport, Los Angeles, California. There were people from eight different states on this flight. The flight was going cross country. It was gonna land in Washington, DC. Uh, while flying across country, a Stinger missile launched from the state of Nebraska, hits the airplane <laughs> and it crashes in Missouri. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Where can the family sue? Right, and you know, I think it, it, this is one of those things where uh, I think people who have never either been in, involved in sort of nitty gritty legal stuff or haven't you know looked into it very particularly, but it may surprise them to hear this, but very often the first step in any kind of legal proceeding is just figuring out where can actually hear it. Like, yeah, well, you, know, you got to put it in your complaint. I mean, that's, that's right. a section you have to have. What's the, why does this court have jurisdiction over this case and controversy? Yeah, and it's if you in an answer. So if you're a defendant, it's answering a complaint. You don't even have to answer if you're disputing jurisdiction. You can say, "I don't yeah. have to." You don't own me. <laughs> uh, you're not the boss of me, yeah. and you can you can just say that. Then the court will hear your jurisdictional dispute before it gets to anything else having to do with the case. Yeah. Did you did you ever see the uh, the video of the guy? Um, at like a New York bakery who gets really upset about something and tells somebody you're not, uh, I think it's, you're not my boss or God or my father. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. That's, uh -huh, basically, yeah. that's basically what that, what that looks like. <laughs> you know, you don't have any of these kinds of jurisdiction over me. <laughs> Shut your mouth. You're not God or my father or my boss. Yeah, well, th those are all various kinds of jurisdiction. Yeah, and that's the important thing to remember, too, is there's never going to be only one judicial power that has jurisdiction yeah. over you at any given time. Um, right. If, if you live in the United States, bare minimum, yeah, bare minimum, there are two. If you live in a totally unincorporated area where you're not part of a county, you're still going to be part of a state. Yeah. Or at the very least, you're going to be part of a territory. Mm -hmm. Um. So you're at the very least going to have the state authority, state court that can drag you in and federal court that can drag you right. in. Yeah. Even if you own nothing, have never spoken to anyone, have never met another human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you were, you know, you emerged from a pod somewhere in the wilds of Montana or something. Right. Um, yeah, except for, I mean, there are exceptions here, actually, I guess. There, there's some national, <laughs> well, because the federal government has um, jurisdiction, exclusive jurisdiction over national parks. That's um, true. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to make absolute statements about this. <laughs> that's that's another thing we want to we want to draw out here. Yeah, there there <laughs> there's always something weird. There's always some wrinkle that you can find somewhere in almost any kind of. And that's why you want a creative lawyer. Yeah, and it's like, no, I mean, no, that, 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 that's, that's what's point. fun is when I like oh. Here's a really weird thing. Here we can dispute jurisdiction. Yeah, we'll just do that. We're not going <laughs> to respond. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a client where, where we got a motion to dismiss um, based on lack of jurisdiction, which is common. You know, you get that a lot. And, and, mm -hmm. and she's asking me, does this mean they're afraid? No. Are, are they afraid of our, our legal arguments? They don't want to get to the merits of the case. And I'm like, no. If they can the avoid getting effective. to the merits, yeah. they will. This is easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a way easier. It's, of course they're going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> they're All wrong. Right. Like the court does have jurisdiction. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you know it's probably going to be the most cost-effective way for them to, to win if they could win on that anyway for their clients. Yeah. So, Otherwise they just wasted um, the money on it. It's less cost-effective. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, uh, there are a few other 
you know, not not quite as granular as that list you were reading earlier. Actually, which, again, here's an, here's an absolute statement you can make. Anywhere in the United States, whether it's a territory, whether it's a national park, whether it's not any of those things, if it is in the United States, you are under the jurisdiction of the United States Constitution. Yeah. Full stop. There is that's nowhere true. in this country the Constitution does not apply. And, and that's why we hold the Constitution in such high regard, uh, because th the buck literally does stop there. Whatever yeah. else may be true, everyone in the United States is subject to the Constitution because the United States is defined by the Constitution. That's what makes us a legal entity. Right. And, and another important one to recognize, another jurisdiction everybody is under, was the same one that Thomas Jefferson recognized in the Declaration of Independence. The basis for United States asserting any claim of unlawfulness against Great Britain when we, when we I want to say filed, but when we sent our Declaration of Independence was that the laws of nature and nature's God had jurisdiction over all men. So yeah, the, you would always be subject to both of those, wherever you are in the United States, wherever you are in the world when it comes to nature and nature's God. Yeah. And I, we'll, we'll probably at some point talk specifically about natural law tradition um, and its relation to, to the U.S. system at some point. But that is, you know, it may sound like a philosophical and sort of abstract statement, but it actually is crucial to the system of common law that we have, the idea yeah. that there is natural law. So, you know, there's anyway. that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, side note, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> no, it, it does have practical import. And then David was saying, yeah. we'll probably do another episode about that later. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like as much as, you know, I think we tend to hear statements like that from the Declaration of Independence as though, you know, it's, oh, it's, you know, it's high rhetoric and it sounds nice, but it doesn't actually have practical import. That's wrong, actually. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. The whole, the whole common law system doesn't work without natural law to undergird it. And, yeah. you know, that's kind of what we got in with, with Kagan's quotation in our last episode, um, is she didn't understand how the common law system worked. She thought it was just there to prop up wrong decisions. Because she doesn't understand there's a natural law undergirding it, where, where cases are the evidence of what is lawful. They are not, you know, they do not create law. Anyway, uh, we're, we're starting to push on our time. So I just want to run down a few other items on my list, things I found in my very thorough uh, internet searching for kinds of jurisdiction. Uh but uh, not not quite as granular as that list you were reading earlier, and which may or may not end up in the episode. But you uh, just speed it up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another kind of of jurisdiction that is possible to have uh, subject matter jurisdiction. Yes. So yeah, that is more for courts and less for you mm -hmm. and the and me. Um, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, federal subject matter jurisdiction. If it's a federal question, then federal courts will have jurisdiction over that. Um, mm -hmm question of state law the state court would have jurisdiction over that yeah uh and yeah we're gonna we're gonna go rapid fire here how about appellate jurisdiction what's that all about tell us about tell us about that yeah so that that's if, if the lower so you, you have a whole trial you allege that that oscar meyer wiener you ate should not have had human bones in it and that that mm -hmm. caused you harm yeah. and oscar my i shouldn't say oscar Meyer. i'm gonna get sued for defamation um <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever your case was, uh, you didn't like the outcome. You thought it was bad. Yeah. You're not good. You can't just appeal that anywhere. You have to appeal it to a court that is above the court that you were talking about. In fact, 
we, we were just talking at length about appellate jurisdiction, right? Like if you have a, a state court ruling on something, the court that has appellate jurisdiction over that state court, if it's a matter of state law, would be a state appellate court or a state Supreme Court, yeah. not a federal appellate court or a federal Supreme Court. Now, there are instances right. where you could appeal to those courts if there was also a basis for federal jurisdiction, but it wouldn't be within that court's appellate jurisdiction. It'd be within that court's original jurisdiction. Um, this is getting too complicated. Anyway, <laughs> appellate jurisdiction is important because it shows who has authority over the other court. Yeah. And you know, that you can trace that all the way up ultimately to the laws of nature and nature's God, which has the final appellate jurisdiction. And that's the reason why the Declaration of Independence was legitimate. Yeah. Uh, actually, I, I remember, I don't, I don't remember what the exact context were, uh, was. I don't remember what these statements were from, but I remember at one point you showed me uh, a bunch of stuff people had written about why the Supreme Court should hear this kind of thing or that kind of thing. And a lot of them were basically just like, oh, it's an important case. They should hear it. And I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, we talked about this at the time that uh, appellate jurisdiction, um, you know, you, you do have to go through stages. The Supreme Court does, doesn't just hear like all of the best cases, all the most important and interesting and the, you know, oh, this has to be gotten right because right it's so important. And, no, and we actually, like... we, we have a, a video on how the Supreme Court decides which cases it takes. We'll link that in the description. Yeah. And actually, that, that's a good segue, because the last thing that I had on my list was discretionary jurisdiction, which is actually a bit different than the other things we've been talking yeah. about. Uh, but that's that's basically what that is. You know, the Supreme Court. It's not that hear... they can decide they do have jurisdiction right. over you. It's that they decide exactly. they don't have jurisdiction over you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not just like, you know, they can be like, Portugal, what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. allowed to do that anymore. You know, it's people yeah. that are already under that, you know, subject of that court's jurisdiction. The, the court can, can decline to take cases. So, right. you know, most appellate courts, if I were to appeal something, Let's take a federal case. If I were to appeal a federal case, it would go to like the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. They don't yeah. get to say we don't want that. Supreme Court's a little bit different. Unless something is in its original jurisdiction, which is a very limited list of things, uh, it yeah. takes cases on what's called writ of certiori. Um, and it has to grant certiori on those cases because it has discretion over whether or not it takes them. Anyway, hopefully that wasn't uh, too mind-numbingly boring as uh, as we may we, we feared it might be. Um, Which is okay, because next time we meet, we're going to be doing something much more exciting. We're actually going to be doing a three-part series on a man who is, well, probably one of history's... Yeah, like, uh, a guy that you said uh, you want the podcast to prove is the worst philosopher in history. Um, that may be, did I say it know, that way? Uh, not, not exactly that way, but certainly something close to that. I don't remember. Somebody exactly who caused either. a lot of harm, certainly in our modern American experience. Yeah. I, you know, uh, there's other people who have been more far reaching other people who have, I don't know that they've been more dense than he is. Uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's Jeremy Bentham. Uh, Jeremy and, Bentham. Uh, yeah. Some of you, some of you may recognize that name. Um, and if you do, it's probably from history class where, uh, basically the way they Utilitarian tend to teach, principle comes from yeah, they, they, no. they, they tend to teach Jeremy Bentham as the seemingly the first guy who ever thought that things should be done if they're practically beneficial. Greatest um, happiness to the greatest number of people <laughs> is the way it's often yeah. cited. Uh, but it's, it gets so much weirder, so much 
more spoilers, but absurd. we've got we've got weird spying prisons. Um, <laughs> we have parts that we will probably need to say are not family friendly based on some of the things he reads. <laughs> we've got a guy who, in the middle of writing his book, says, "I read one of my other books and I couldn't make sense of it." It uh, seemed like it a seemed stupid, stupid thing I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> A man who requested after he died that his body be stuffed and preserved so that his friends could take it out at parties and not miss him. Yeah, um, his friends told him, he'd, we'll, we'll get more into that, but it's, I don't want to spoil too much, but he's a fun guy. Oh, yeah. you know, life of the party. I think we have just enough time to do Captain Kangaroo here. All right, gather around, folks. It's time once again for everyone's favorite segment of this podcast, where we examine eccentricities and crazy features of the law throughout the United States and throughout the world, throughout all history. Captain Kangaroo Court. So, I don't have anything planned for this, David. Do you have things planned for? I I do. Uh, and I guess th- th- this is going to be a bit of a theme because I've been quizzing you quite a lot here. Uh, I have a pop quiz for you, uh, one that you're going to hate because it's not going to be. Uh, precise at all uh, and, and uh, the phrasing is going to frustrate you I think okay. but I'm going to present you with three different things that have been referred to as the the X defense so you know three different things we're doing the Twinkie to. defense Twinkie defense is first up so can you explain what about to the, us what uh, the... what's the the black rage defense we're doing that one no, no 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 not that one okay but anyway, Twinkie Defense is first up. So can you explain to the people what the Twinkie Defense was? I, I'm forgetting the details. It wasn't actually a legally significant case, but it was in the news a lot. Um, right. And basically the argument was this guy ate a bunch of Twinkies. It made him so angry he committed some kind of violent crime, right? Not quite. That's basically the way that it was reported on. And maybe it'll make you happy to know uh, that that's not at all what the defense team did. Okay. Um, well, good. Uh, yeah, because that, that would be nonsense. That'd be hard to prove. Like, you need a pretty good expert witness for that one. Yeah. Now, now granted, uh, if, if the CEO of, of Hostess says that Twinkies are designed to do this, <laughs> done and done. To, but... to make people temporarily, uh, uh, you know, homicidally insane. Um, not quite. Uh, it actually was, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to make light of the case itself. Uh, it was a, a double murder. Um, very serious crime. Uh, uh, it was actually the, uh, the assassination of Harvey Milk. Uh, That's and right. uh, the, the, the mayor of San Francisco at That's that right. time, uh, George Moscone, um, the, yeah, the media reported as though the, the accused uh, attorneys were saying he started eating a bunch of Twinkies and it drove him insane and he committed these murders. That's, that's not what they said. Uh, what they were doing essentially was arguing down from a murder charge to a, a manslaughter charge. Uh, by that, that's citing, what you do. That, that's the way murder yeah. defenses work. They mitigate. Yeah, uh, and they cited uh, evidence, among other things, uh, that he had been in a, a profoundly depressed state of mind. And one of the things they cited as evidence for this was he used to be a fanatic for his health, but he had started eating terribly, including large amounts of Twinkies. It wasn't the only thing they mentioned. They, you know, basically that he stopped taking care of himself. He seemed to be in a profound depressive mood. Wait, so what, uh, what's the what's the mitigating facts there? Uh, essentially, that's just, that, a, that's just a motive to kill people being depressed. <laughs> I that, I will say I uh, I'm not sure that if I were on the jury, I would have bought this argument. Well, I'm uh, saying even if you buy it, I don't understand why it mitigates. Uh, basically, uh, the the thrust of it was he wasn't capable of premeditation. 
basically. He was not. In oh, a so so it's a mitigation from first degree to second degree murder, not to manslaughter. Yeah. Um, I think. Let me check the uh, standard murder. Common law murder is unlawful killing of a human being with malice aforethought. And then you ratchet that up to first degree if it's with premeditation and deliberation. Yeah. Uh, I'm citing the the infallible Wikipedia here. So again, you know, I have no idea how how exactly accurate this is. Could be completely off base. What Wikipedia has is that he ended up being convicted of voluntary manslaughter. Okay. Um, That's some jurisdictions have that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, the, the key principle there being that it wasn't something that he, you know, depressed people aren't capable of premeditation and deliberate. Again, I just think it gives you a motive. Re- <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm not sure. Like, why I'm did he do it? One. Well, because he was horribly depressed and thought this would help somehow. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not uh, buying it exactly. And certainly, no. you know, I read I read some of the other details. He arranged to meet the mayor. Uh, he had he had been like on uh, 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 the city board or, or something. You know, he'd been involved in city government. He'd resigned. He wanted to re- take back his resignation, and the mayor wasn't letting him. So he arranged a meeting with the mayor and brought a gun there, and he ended up killing the mayor as well as Harvey Milk. Um, that all sounds bringing like a the plan gun. Yeah, when me. you um, in California, if you're carrying a gun. Well, and evidently he evaded metal detectors at the entrance of, of uh, City Hall. Right, that's my point. Like um, lots of yeah. lots of venues do not allow. It's not it's not like some parts of the country where you just carry it with you everywhere as right. like a daily thing. It's, it's even if you have a concealed carry permit, it's a huge hassle in this yeah. state to try to take a gun with you. If you're doing it, there's a specific reason why. Yeah. So anyway, b- based on the evidence presented, I'm not sure the jury. I I'm not in favor to... of those laws, by the way. Those laws are terrible. I think you should be able to bring guns everywhere. But <laughs> but uh, at any rate, so that the Twinkie defense uh, mischaracterized in the media, but still I mean, maybe... barely, barely mischaracterized. Yeah. That was pretty yeah. accurate. <laughs> All right. So that that's number one. <laughs> it's a bad defense. It didn't work, did it? Uh, well, it, it worked in so far as the, the jury convicted of voluntary manslaughter and not murder one it was charged uh, with murder one yeah yeah anyway okay so that, that's number one number two are you familiar with the dissolving mouse defense i think i've heard it and again this none one, of these are like legally significant cases so. right right <laughs> yeah well in this one it's uh defense is absolutely the wrong word for this because it, it, it's not even a criminal charge um uh it, it was a civil you, suit you, you defend um, civil suits well, you're uh, a defendant. Are you? Yeah, plaintiff Is defendant. That the terminology? I thought it was yeah. generally speaking going to be respondent. Um, no, that's if like it's a petition or something like that. All right. Well, okay. So so anyway, maybe defense is a petition or respondent, but no, it's plaintiff defendant. All right. At any rate, uh <laughs> this one uh I think was from about 10 years ago. But uh Basically, a guy claimed he bought a Mountain Dew, cracked it open, and found a mouse corpse in mm-hmm. his in his soda. And uh, you know, understandably, you know, wanted to, to, to hold someone liable for for serving him a, a mouse. Corpse. Yeah, that's pretty uh, bad. <laughs> <laughs> so he sued PepsiCo, which is the owner of the Mountain Dew brand. Uh huh. And the the Mountain Dew defense was that they uh, they demonstrated that. That a mouse could not remain well, in the Mountain Dew because Mountain Dew is so caustic that it dissolves the mouse. That's exactly what they did. Yes, that on the timelines that it takes for a product to go from bottling 
to point of sale. How is this no not chance. a bigger media story? Like, <laughs> I feel like people wouldn't like it that the soda dissolves mice. Yeah, uh, and that, that's generally uh, the tenor of the people who reported on this. Um, yeah, I'd, why, I'd surprised they didn't just pay this guy off. Like, if that's your defense, are you kidding me? Were these corporate lawyers or was this outside counsel they hired? Uh, I believe this was, I believe this was the PepsiCo lawyer team. Um, really? Like, uh, I would think that they would have the company's PR, like they would understand that PR is more important than winning our case, but you, you might, uh, it, it's one of those things where I both believe that that could be true. Yeah, sure. And that that might not actually have any actual effect on, you know, the health prospects of Mountain Dew, which is already, I'm I, sure, I, yeah, bad but for it sure you. sounds like it would. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's <laughs> it like, it dissolves uh, flesh. I'm made of flesh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, there was apparently a trend, uh, back in like the 60s and 70s for science teachers to, to warn kids off of drinking too much Coca-Cola by demonstrating that it could dissolve a nail. Yeah. Uh, and then I remember hearing about this and it turns out that, uh, like, because of the, the chemical composition of teeth, that had absolutely no bearing on how it would affect teeth. Like enamel right. and iron are just so different that that doesn't actually have yeah. any impact. Well, I mean, I'm, like our, our stomachs are have hydrochloric acid. In yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that yeah, would yeah. also dissolve humans. Yeah, so. you know, that, that's the other thing to consider is like how long is this actually in contact with your body anyway? Right. Uh, but you're certainly right that the PR does not sound great. No, no, people don't <laughs> like that at all. <laughs> all right. And my final one. Did, did they win? I, I want to know. I believe they did win. Yes, yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, that um, makes sense. How, or, many, or how much sales did they that... lose from it? For, what was what was the value of the lawsuit versus uh, let, the let sales see... they lost because of the? <laughs> let, let me see if that's in uh, the, the the report that I'm citing here is from Scientific American, which did not really focus on the legal aspect so much as on the chemistry aspect. Um, mm -hmm. They don't say. They don't say. And I, I think there's a, a very strong chance that they just reached a, a quiet settlement, um, but. At any rate, yeah, that's usually what happens here. Yeah, uh, this one I'm, I'm virtually certain you'll not have heard of this one. Uh, are you familiar with the fake heart attack defense? No. Okay, so this one I'll show you the video clip in a second. Uh, there's this guy uh, named uh, Keeson Wilkins or Keeson Wilkins, something along those lines. Uh, a man defending himself in court. Which, first of all, uh, don't do that. Uh, general word of advice not a good idea if, yeah if, if you um, what is the what is the expression a man who defends himself in court has a fool for a client yeah uh <laughs> he he had apparently successfully defended himself on uh something like a simple assault charge something like that i'll, I'll go to the video clip here did she inform you that she had family in another part of Ohio? She did not provide me with that information now. She, she never provided you. Excuse me, hope so. Your Honor, excuse me for a second. Um, I, need, I need some time. We're going to take a break. We're going to take a break. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'll please step out. The record should reflect that the defendant is slouching over to the side and acts like he's sleeping. His, his breath appears to be quite normal. Doesn't appear to be labored in any way. Is that a fair assessment, sir? Yes. It's not labored in any manner. Um, does he appear to be doing anything to you other than sitting in that chair? No, Your Honor. Oh. 
a remarkable uh, change. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> those of you listening will not be uh, be picking up on here. Yeah, he um, just grabbed his chest, said he needed some time, uh-huh. and then fell out of it, fell down onto the ground. Now he's slumping over in his chair. Yeah, uh, while the judge just sort of irritatedly looks around <laughs> in frustration, uh-huh. um, they ha- I- I'll skip most of this. Uh, they bring out a full medical team because, you know, uh, despite the fact that the judge is obviously where he's faking, um, yeah. you can't just assume that. Uh, but they right. have medics check him out. <laughs> that, would, that could be bad. Yeah, <laughs> they, have, they have medics check him out extensively, say that there's nothing wrong with him. And as all of this is happening, and as the judge goes on to say, sir, if you don't pretend, stop pretending that you're unconscious, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. Uh, <laughs> he, he refuses to, uh, to open his eyes and, and you know, actually, um, you know, return to paying attention until they bring out smelling salts. And he does the most over the top sort of <gasps> when they bring out the smelling salts. All right. Um, how, how did that work out for him? Not well. Uh, I, I don't believe that the rest of that case went particularly well for him. Yeah, but, um, I'm not surprised. It was, was a bold strategy. I, I believe he was. Let me see if I can. Okay. Uh, he really should have been. <laughs> but again, uh, pro per litigants get a lot of leeway. <laughs> okay. So the, the brief report by uh, the local ABC affiliate uh, for the Chicago land area where, where this took place doesn't mention being found contempt, uh, but he was convicted ultimately, and it was to a number of charges, including uh, felonious assault, uh, sentenced to 42 years Goodness. Uh, in prison. So That's a bad job. Defend- felonious assault shouldn't net you 42 years. I, I think it was probably both repeat offender uh, kickers yeah. and uh, a whole host of lesser charges yeah. as well. But uh, yeah, anyway, so the, the fake heart attack defense did not pay off for him. Doesn't surprise me a great deal. Anyway, that's that was the pop quiz. Uh, you did pretty well, I would say. Definitely got the Twiggy. I don't defense. know any of them. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you you got the Twiggy defense more or less correct. Uh, the the Mountain Dew defense, you basically guessed. <laughs> in the fake heart attack. I could see where it was going. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's no there's no way anyone had heard of that the the fake heart attack defense because I think this only happened. It's not really uh, a defense, is it? It's kind of just no, a way to get out of. Yeah, it, it's just to a. Litigate. That, that was that was what I was saying earlier that the language is going to frustrate you because a, a few yeah. of the the reports on it use that phrase but it's it's not a defense it was no. just a desperation tactic in the courtroom yeah <laughs> just ask for a recess if you need it <laughs> you'd think uh, anyway uh, that's that's all we've got though for Captain Kangaroo Court all right folks thanks for tuning in for to your hopefully your favorite podcast though that may be a bit overly <laughs> optimistic but we'll join you once again next week for Captain Kangaroo Court. Um, that's all for today. Yep. All right. And uh, stick around for everyone's favorite, our series of disclaimers. Of course. Thanks for listening. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L-E-X-R-E-X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.